Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut, and today we're talking about racism, which is a pretty big topic, so maybe we should narrow it down a bit. Um, specifically, we're talking about racism in the healthcare industry, and in particular, accusations of racism at Seattle Children's Hospital that have surfaced in the last six months. For this conversation, we're sitting down with the person who made those accusations, Dr. Ben Danielson. Dr. Danielson resigned from the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic last fall after serving two decades as medical director there. He says working at the clinic, which is operated by Seattle Children's, was his dream job. But according to his resignation letter, it sounded more like a nightmare. Crosscut reporter David Croman broke the story of Dr. Danielson's departure at the very end of 2020. And since then, supporters of the doctor have come out in droves demanding that Seattle Children's respond to his accusations. Seattle Children's has done so by asking one of their leaders to step down, accelerating the hospital's work to become a, quote, more diverse, equitable, and inclusive organization, and by drafting former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder to launch an independent investigation into the claims brought by Dr. Danielson. Now, almost four months later, the doctor has a new job in the pediatrics department at the University of Washington Medical Center and is continuing to tell his story, which is exactly what he did earlier this month during CrossCut's monthly Northwest Newsmakers event series with host Monica Guzman. I've got Monica here now to tell us a little more about this conversation. Hey, Monica. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... We've all heard Dr. Danielson's story. It really blew up um, after it was reported late last year. What were you hoping to hear from him in this interview? So I was hoping that we could go behind the headlines, behind the story that, that people saw to this person who made this choice that had some you know, real repercussions around the city, that that. Uh, continued a conversation that was high stakes and that goes on to this day and that is complicated. So I was hoping to be able to see more of Dr. Danielson, who he was before he made this decision, what went into that process for him, and then how he views the implications since and what his role will be into the future of this issue. Um, And so... After this came out, uh, so much love and support came out for the doctor. Really, you saw a community swing into action. And so there were a lot of people in the audience for this conversation who were there to support the, the doctor, but also there were people who had questions. So what were the questions that we were seeing from the audience? We saw some incredible, very thoughtful and invested questions And if there's one theme about them all, it was, what do we do? Hmm. Dr. Danielson has gotten a a kind of credibility. He he represents uh, courage around this issue for a lot of people in the city, uh, particularly because his his reputation is so strong and the way he makes folks feel um, who have been his patients and his family, just so much support. So they asked everything from, you know, maybe someone says, I, I'm, I'm in the similar situation, a, a kind of toxic culture around race. What do I do? What are mm. my options? And also, hey, Dr. Danielson, what's your diagnosis? 
if you had the authority at Seattle Children's or at other institutions in healthcare, what would you do? What would you have us all do? And Dr. Danielson uh, says some interesting things about the rush to want to solve a problem like this, which, of course, even if we wanted to, that's probably just not how it's going to go. This is a long road. Hmm. So what's your takeaway from this conversation, Monica? Well, that it, it is quite rare, I think you'll, you know, you'll agree, um, for one person's actions to have uh, so much weight hmm. and, and such an impact in, so, you know, not just an institution, but a community and an industry and a whole big conversation, like the conversation about race that affects so many things. I think my takeaway is how illuminating it can be, hopefully in a productive sense, to examine a complicated issue through one person's story. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, Monica, thanks so much for sharing a little bit of what went into and what you took from this conversation. Uh, just a note for our listeners that we reached out to Seattle Children's before this event for a statement. Among other things, they said that they recognize they are not immune to systemic racism. And I quote, we are committed to holding ourselves accountable, fighting it, and acting to dismantle the institutional barriers that allow racism and discrimination to occur. Okay, we hope you all enjoy the conversation. As always, you can reach us at talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Dr. Danielson, Macklemore wore a sweatshirt that read, I believe Dr. Ben Danielson to a flag raising at the Space Needle earlier this year in support of you. The big public reaction to your departure, both in the black community and the region at large, is it what you expected? And has any of it surprised you? All of it has surprised me. I've been overwhelmed. Um, you know, even in the moments of greatest tragedy, there are often these, uh, equally powerful moments of, of uh, humanity and community. And uh, I don't feel deserving of all of the supportive attention I've gotten, uh, but I'm sure thankful for it. It's it's really been moving from every corner of the this area. It's really amazing. And so it sounds like you were, it, it, it wasn't what you, you, you didn't expect this level of support. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Yeah. I had no idea um, people would, would reach out, show up, uh, put their own voices out there, um, make sacrifices and call out uh, what's happening. Mm. What did you hear from your patients uh, once the decision was announced? Did, did people reach out to you? Yeah, it's been really difficult. Um, there were messages like, just tell me where you land so, so we, can, we can go there. There have been um, just messages of support and um, just community, if you know what I mean. And I think there's been just these, it's these layers of, mm. of common shared journey and perspective. And I have to say it's especially, I guess, humbling um, because I have had the, the, the privilege to be able to make a statement, to resign from Children's Hospital. Um, and I know that there are a lot of families, families I work with, families that go to the clinic, families from other parts of this area who don't have the privilege of standing up in that way. Mm. So, uh, it's, it's been powerful. Mm. 
so speaking about your patients, when we talked earlier, you had mentioned you're not currently seeing patients just yet at Utah Medical Center. And I wanted to ask you if you could share why. Um, it feels a little bit hard, you know, that first time going to a different place. Um, I know as soon as I jump into the, the moments of care and uh, start seeing families and stuff, it'll be wonderful. Um, but I adore the people I worked with in the clinic at Odessa Brown. I adore the families I've served there, and um, it is is not an easy transition. Is that is is yeah. what's holding you back? The fact that you miss the families at Odessa. What, what is holding you back? Well, you know, there's also logistics, paperwork, and all of yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I've been working on some uh, other kinds of, of um, projects that have been feeling important in this moment as well. So uh, it's a combination of all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do after your dream job? You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. And we'll, we'll be talking more about the themes around that. Um, you've, you've hung, I, I heard that you hung paintings of your mother who's oh. white on the walls at Odessa. Uh, can you tell us about her and how she raised you? Um, my mom is uh, this wonderful, uh, unrepentant hippie who <laughs> uh, got all her chops in the 60s and 70s, was out there protesting and rioting during that time, spent nights in jail, um, and uh, raised me and my, my two sisters with this idea that um, we owe each other in this society. Um, a sense of service to each other. We owe each other the best that we can bring to helping to lift up beloved communities. We, we owe each other to be contributors. And um, so that was a value she pushed. She felt that from our uh, low income spaces, the best path to security also was, was by getting an education and she really pushed on that, uh, not just for education's sake, but uh, she wanted us to be thinking people who could mm. kind of have an argument with her, <laughs> kind of be able to talk about stuff. So was that was that common in, in your household, like actually yeah. getting to it? Yeah. Yeah. I think in a way, um, respect, you respected somebody by, by saying, wow, I really want to get into this conversation with you, um, which might not be a total Northwest thing. Um, <laughs> we, we have Seattle nice here and some other, yeah. some other mm. things. Um, so depending on who you are, racism is on a spectrum between something you learn about and something you live with. How have you lived with it? Um, there's not enough time for that. I guess, um, you know, I've, I've had different versions of that growing up in different places and uh, spent more time in the back of uh, police cruisers and things like that than I'd care to admit or share. And I've seen the ways in which people um, are denigrated or erased in the society. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen. Um, I think all of us though have have our journeys and our stories to tell. And um, I don't I don't want to put mine out there as is any more mm-hmm. um, deep sage or uh, intense than than so many others. I would say that uh, you can't. You can't be brown or black in this country and not experience experience mm-hmm. racism and 
maybe the versions of racism in this generation are just so much more subtle, which makes them that much more difficult and painful and they undermine your sense of who you are if you let them. They, they um, sometimes take away your sense of agency. It's, it's the kind of thing that, um, you know, you can't call it, uh, the authorities to come uh, arrest somebody for racism in this country. You just really can't. There's no legal code, really, in my, in my mind anyway, for racism. This is a, this is a social disease that um, we struggle with, and it takes different shapes and forms, but it, it kills people. It changes lives. It takes away quality years of life. It, it affects you in every way. You called leaving Odessa the most painful sacrifice. What did you see? So let's put it in the room. What did you see that made that sacrifice necessary? What tipped the scales? I often um, want to try to characterize things as this progressive process that are heavier than um, the straw that breaks a camel's back, but but are loads that you choose to bear on one point and then get to a point where you can't can't bear them anymore. I think that the um, the historic nature of my experiences of racism at Seattle Children's and the the unreckoning. I, I make up words a lot, so apologies, but the lack of reckoning for that and the sort of desire to zip forward into we're just going to be doing great from now on yeah. um, is its own trauma, is its own pain. Can the, you give examples of, of that? Of the history? Well, of the, the skipping over, of the things you have in mind as you as you describe that overall impression. Um, two that come to mind. One is pretty open now. Um, you know, a hospital leader that uses the N-word in reference to me and uses other really strongly um, hateful language in reference to people of Asian descent and, uh, and women um, is, is called to the mat by a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is odious to me that that person carried that kind of hate in their heart. And it this is, is the person children's asked to step down, just so our viewers know. Yeah, but it is more concerning to me that, that when that was initially um, a happening, Children's just chose to redefine that language as as cussing or swearing. And um, I guess we could have arguments about how to categorize those, those kinds of words. I, I would put it that they carry a particular kind of weight when it's a hospital leader. Um, mm -hmm. They carry a particular kind of harm when it's um, in different circles, different forms of, of hateful speech. And, um, to just recategorize it and then subsequently saying no wrongdoing was found. Mm. It's not that they actually argued in their assessment of his language, whether or not he said those things. Um, my knowledge of how that investigation went was uh, they decided that it did not count as, as something worthy of, re of any kind of penalty from a work perspective. It was just cussing. Um, and that was the kind of way uh, a previous um, CEO of the hospital mm -hmm. characterized it. Mm -hmm. So it is more concerning. I'm sorry I'm dangling on this point. It's more concerning to me 
that the hospital created a space for accepting it mm. and then sort of pushing it aside, mm. much in some ways, much more even than the hateful speech mm. uh, that was used, uh, which is probably why I really wanted the hospital to, to come to account for that. And, and how about when it comes to patients and, and how they were treated? Watching um, the hospital do this strange thing of measuring some things um, 10 or 12 years ago and then not responding to them was um, almost hubris or cruel. Um, really recognizing- about that? Own, I'm not sure I follow. Yeah. You said measuring some things? Yeah, through their own assessment, finding that uh, security was disproportionately called on families based on the color of their skin um, 10 years ago and having pretty clear evidence of that and then sitting on that. Those are these kinds of smoldering things, this sort of almost, there's a, there's a tacit acceptance. It's, there's a complicity of like, yeah, we know this and we're not gonna do anything about it. Um, now in the past year, there's been some action on that there is a reckoning for the intervening decade of no action. Um, and I cannot believe that leadership didn't know about that report that was delivered to the leadership's desk. And it's either incompetence not to know it sooner or, um, or really intentionally allowing that to be part of the reality for Children's Hospital. Those are, these things are not okay. They're not unique. They're not unique. I wonder what would happen if, if every hospital measured when security gets called, mm. what is considered, you know, too loud or too threatening. Um, but it is it is this space, this children's hospital space that I experienced, and so this is the space I, I'm calling to some version of, of a reckoning around. You don't get to just move fast forward into from now on everything's going to be great because that's how that's how this country is done it's most harm over over generations and generations. Um, so on that point, you've said you believe that the issues at Odessa are not unique. Oh, so, I'm, really I'm talking about Seattle Children's Hospital. Oh, and I right, right. From Seattle Children's Hospital. I should be clear um, about that too. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's through the system that you were yeah, talking about. Yeah. So when, when you said that, that those issues are not unique, t tell us, to what degree was your complaint against an institution and to what degree was it against an industry or something more? Those are, are completely blended um, thoughts and questions. It became more direct when the institution itself said it was doing things about it, uh, but didn't actually name anything with, with any true accountability. Right around the time of George Floyd's murder um, by a knee to the neck for nine minutes, um, like many other places, Seattle Children's put out a statement about how anti-racist they were, they were and were going to be. And many of us called them to account on that. Like, what do you mean? What are you going to do? What's going to be different? You already have this evidence of, of treating families um, based on the color of their skin when it comes to, uh, to security. You already have this other evidence of, of families who, who complain about being treated differently. You already have these spaces where black and brown nurses feel they've been treated differently at Seattle Children's. So what exactly is gonna be different? What's the accountability that comes with this? Mm -hmm. I guess I still don't even see the accountability, except the word accountability, 
in their most recent statement there, AROC statement. I, I, I applaud them for making progress and trying to really come to a closer re reckoning. Um, but until there's a day when a black mom with a child with sickle cell disease can walk into the CEO's office and say, you treated my child wrong, you're fired. Um, I guess maybe that's an over, over hope or something, but um, there is not the kind of accountability to, to racism that there is to financial goals or um, other kinds of measures that hospitals pride themselves on being so specific and scientific mm -hmm. about. And maybe that's part of the reckoning, right? It's kind of reordering some of these priorities. You've said that this has been your reckoning too, that, yeah. that you've been complicit in the problems you saw in some ways. Can you tell us about that? If you're in a system, you're complicit. I think there's a sort of the beginning point for that. I don't know what it's like in the world of journalism. Mm. Um, mm, yeah, no, there's plenty we, <laughs> there's plenty we have to <laughs> reckon with ourselves. Yeah, and so I think it's important um, this time is, is a is a time for reflection as part of that reckoning and really understanding where where we all play roles um all of us have have drank the tea of of racism and bias gender bias and and ageism and uh, ableism we we are part of this society that bakes all of those things into its system so by that sort of super broad definition there's complicity that I just think we need to talk about more and be willing to say, yeah, I am, I'm part of this problem. Yeah. And, um, and personal, like for you, right. Yeah. Specifically. On a personal level, um, you know, uh, there was a story a week ago or so in the Emerald about um, um, a child with, with cancer. And that is a story that's not for me to tell. It's for mm -hmm. Sarah, for mom, but, um, but, there was something in there about, you know, you try to speak up, but did I speak up loud enough? Did I push hard enough? Did I yell loud enough? Um, I've watched fellow uh, black and brown colleagues um, get into positions of, of awareness and even maybe sort of authority about issues of racism in children's institution and, and back up from really calling things to account because their jobs rely on it or because their chance for advancement does. Uh, there's complicity that happens at so many different levels in this. And I'm sorry to be moving around this topic, but- um, It's a complicated one. <laughs> yeah, when, it's a complicated one. And I would put it that, um, that what I'll just call sort of white dominant oriented community wants to simplify it, wants to make it really simple and, and um, wants, maybe out of good good um, desires to understand it better, but wants to simplify it. So it's, it, it makes black communities monochromatic. It makes these issues uh, very hard to navigate and it creates a space where um, we're not really having the right conversations a lot of the time. So to complicate it maybe even further, you said, you know, we could, we could all be complicit in certain certain systems. Are things different at UW now that you're there? Um, I don't know that there, there's a, maybe different versions of things. So by that token, if I'm really kind of hanging specifically on the word different, yeah. But I think organizations all around us struggle with these issues. It makes a little bit of a difference to me 
the strength of acknowledgement of those problems. It makes a difference um, that um, different spaces come sometimes from a stronger honesty. I've, I've been a, just had these great conversations with many organizations in the healthcare system, in the education system, in the social services system that, that are just ready to say, hey, we're not doing this right. We have problems. And it's a different sound to me. It's a different thing than than an AROC statement, which is like, hey, we've got this figured out and just wait. wait you're saying AROC statement? I'm not familiar with that term. What does that mean? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you referenced it at the beginning, the statement the Seattle Children's has about its plans. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I don't know if you said AROC or something, and I wasn't sure what oh. that acronym was, but no, no worries. <laughs> it might be a technical term. And I don't mean to um, fully criticize Seattle Children's on their AROC. I think there's a lot of thought and work that went into it. I, I, I wonder if it happened a little bit in a, a vacuum, um, but I still don't see the accountability in it. I don't see the the humility of really acknowledging wrongdoing and i i think it comes from fear i think there's a little bit of a culture of 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 cloaking and privacy i think that's caused many problems in addition to the issues of uh racism it's caused other challenges for the hospital as well um there's work to do i, I guess i see the hospital trying to begin them but I've lost my confidence that this hospital in its current structure will actually do an honorable job of that. We'll be back with more after this message. What does it really mean to defund the police? Before last summer, this wasn't a question many people were asking. Now, it's a raging national debate. Because in a handful of cities, including Seattle, it's happening. And I am committed to defunding the police. I'm Sarah Bernard, host and producer of This Changes Everything, a podcast from CrossCut about the new normal. In the first season, we explored the many ways the coronavirus pandemic has impacted our lives. This season, staff reporter David Croman and I dig into another of the thorniest issues facing Seattle, the movement to defund police and the city council's decision to begin to do just that. How did we get here? Where do we go from here? And if not armed officers, then who? Listen now at crosscut.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So obviously a lot of folks are tuned in to the problem of race. We've been talking about this reckoning and you know, more and more loudly uh, in, in the, the past several years. So on the pathway to working through big problems, it helps to identify what's behind them. So for anyone out there wondering, um, and also for, from your own experience, how do you separate actions driven by racism from actions driven by incompetence, negligence, or a lack of empathy? I wanna answer that in a slightly different way, and it's, I'm not trying to avoid that question, but um, we're in this moment right now, which is, I'm laughing because it's so ironic to me that we are very fully acknowledging that systemic racism exists and is problematic in our, in our healthcare system, in our society, in, in journalism, in our education system. And yet then when we get into it, we do the anything but racism kind of search. We just like, what could it be otherwise? Isn't racism. Not racism. I wonder... Could we call it, oh, this is about poverty. Oh yeah, it's just socioeconomic. Why do you think, why do you think there is that temptation to do that? 
Yeah, and I, I, I want us to have different conversations. I want to challenge us to, to stop that, to stop that. That's this very forensic kind of um, approach. You can't say racism is systemic and then say, well, but you know, we're going to weed it out in a way that you can't prove it. I, I hope that's not, um, or I hope that's an acceptable answer, or at least. Oh, no, of course. I mean, yeah, that's one of those questions I think that folks have in mind, but, but can bring up lots of different themes around this. Like we said, this is a complicated issue. We're here to, we're here to deal with it. And I, I put it out there that I don't think with intention, but out of some subconscious fear, um, the status quo is doubling down on maintaining their status quo. And we'll do things, we'll use equity language in, in order to ultimately just sustain things the way they are. We'll, uh, we'll push out people who are not saying the right things. We'll try to find a different reason uh, for all of that happening. Uh, that is part of part of the plan right now across a lot of different systems and a lot of different organizations. I remember sitting in uh, a meeting uh, in the CEO's office with a couple of other big leaders. And uh, one of them, the CFO at the time, um, at one point sort of, I remember her pounding a fist and saying, uh, systemic racism doesn't exist. I don't believe systemic racism exists. I looked to our leader to see how that person might respond to that. Um, it was just quiet. Um, I saw one of my colleagues starting to try to respond to that. And I'm thinking to myself, here we are in a table with three or four other top leaders of the hospital, and they're not responding to this statement that this other leader made. This is the environment I'm in. That was years ago, but um, you can just look on uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association 10, 12 days ago, um, and you will see a podcast where the topic was um, doctors aren't racist, so structural racism doesn't exist in medicine. Mm -hmm. These issues are are here, and they're deep. They're deep, and the more we ask ourselves to contend with them, the deeper people kind of dig their heels in. In some ways, mm -hmm. I don't think they would say that or even be conscious of it in many ways. But but it feels like there's a double down happening. Mm -hmm. So a quick reminder for our viewers, a quick pause, um, to get your questions in. Hopefully we're having the kind of conversation that keeps you curious and is inspiring more things you wanna learn about and hear about from Dr. Danielson on this very important critical topic to our community. Um, Dr. Danielson, Seattle Children's, as you've mentioned, says it's committed to being an anti-racist organization and it's used that term anti-racist. You may have already answered this, but I'll ask it again because there's an opportunity to go deeper. Do you believe that Children's is capable of meeting that goal? What does it look like to you for an organization to be anti-racist? In its current form, I am not convinced that it can get there. Um, and, and why, what's in its way? Uh, the triple whammy of culture, policy, and leadership. In my opinion, um, I think those are all problematic spaces around this. And um, and anyone else could debate differently or could put up a different argument. Um, I do see those statements as as progress. Um, 
there's some different formulations sometimes for understanding the continuum of organizational anti-racism. And maybe this is signs of Seattle Children's moving from its club mentality where uh, you can have a few token people, but they have to keep their mouth shut to symbolic change where more people can be involved. The conversation can include equity more often, uh, but but really try not to make waves. It's it, there's maybe maybe there's progress. Yeah. Um, but I think that um, that they've proven themselves to be differently oriented. And until there's some evidence, strong ownership, a commitment to transformation, not just sort of um, transactional accountability, mm. a commitment to doing something deeper than um, playing some numbers games or, mm. or so what like actions that. what actions would you want to see then? Um, Uh, well, I would want a reverse of some of the things that have been happening. The board of the hospital kind of like dissolved its DEI committee, like, you know, a year or so ago. Like the direction has been in the, in the I don't know how you can create an anti-racist organization while you're dismantling the structures therein. Mm. I see there, you know, the hospital's hiring um, new people to be part of their equity work. And I just hope that those people actually have the authority to call leadership to the mat on these issues. And I don't know that I've seen that before for, for Seattle Children's, and I'm sure that's probably true for many other organizations as well. There's a commitment, but there's not an authority to really say, hey, you're not doing this, and this means your job. That's one piece. You mentioned a story that ran in the South Seattle Emerald uh, very recently. One black mother shared it. It's heartbreaking. It's about her experience at Seattle Children's. She's detailing what she felt to be very discriminatory treatment um, against her and her dying two-year-old son, um, who ended up passing away, I think, a couple years later. She did this. She shared this story despite having signed a non-disclosure agreement, she said, because she was encouraged by the example of your resignation. So clearly, and you, I think you know this, you feel this, you've, you've become part of a broader complicated reckoning. You've become for some an inspiration, for some an example on, on equity and racism. Um, what do you feel then is your responsibility moving forward? Uh, well, first I just have to say there are, there are many, many more um, brilliant, powerful, amazing champions for this work out there, all over out there. So um, um, I'm a little bit reluctant to play into exceptionalism, even in this role, if that's if that's understandable. Um, because I think there are a lot of people who know, know what's going on and, and know what needs to be done. Second thing I would say is that this issue of non-disclosure agreements, I, I recognize as such a corporate challenge now that they are used so indiscriminately to assure that never a bad word is said. And um, that is that is not transparency. That is not honesty. That is not naming us as, as flawed human beings working in flawed systems mm -hmm. to try to do our best, you know, to try to get to a more perfect, not a perfect, but a more perfect um, union. This is just, um, this is just really, really challenging in that way. I guess um, I should mention on that point real quick to our viewers that 
Children's, as part of its investigation, is encouraging transparency from families and patients and has said that those agreements do not apply if folks want to come and tell their stories to the um, investigation firm handling that. Yes, but yes. To their credit, uh, to their credit, uh, it. I think it took some negotiation for that to happen, but to their credit, that that did happen, and um, and I hope that that really is uh, truly opening a door. Uh, once you've had a culture of non-disclosure agreements and um, threatened threats to your financial security and things like that, it is a long road back to trust. Mm. Like somebody just says, oh, yeah, we're going to stop. You know, you're going to be fine if you say whatever you want to. Um, I don't know that you can. I mean, you're we're all human beings. We Once you have 20 experiences, uh, then the one change doesn't necessarily make it everybody come forward in the way that, that you might expect. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of an odd expectation, I would say. Mm-hmm. I remember Tenehisi Coates talking about this in his article about reparations, about, um, you know, you stab a man in the back 10 times, and then you think everything is fixed by not stabbing the 11th time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what does that really mean for us? What, what, are, what are we expecting or understanding about the state of racism in this nation today and yesterday and tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Which is actually an excellent segue to our first reader question. So this is a question sent in by Sprout Hochberg, uh, and this was sent in ahead of the event. And after this question, I will also be um, asking you some questions from the viewers watching live with us right now. So Sprout says, not everyone has the privilege you do to leave a job without another in hand. Right. What do you suggest for people who work in places with institutional racism, but they cannot leave their position? I think everyone has um, to make the the best decisions that they can. And I think it's completely legitimate to say that um, I need to be in this position if I'm a, a black woman leading a department of medicine. I need to be in this position in order to be on the inside of making change. If you think that you're going to get to a space where you're going to have influence, I think it's completely legitimate for a person who works for a big organization to say, I see this happening and yet I really need my job. And maybe also um, you don't escape racism. You just move to another place with its own version of that. So I, I fully endorse Sprout's perspective on this. And I think that um, um, it is, is both wise and understandable. And I put myself to account. If I am able to make a statement, um, if I didn't make a statement, mm. what would that have meant? What would I, what would I be? Uh, a person full of privilege and yet not, not doing what I should be in the name of addressing issues of racism. I, yesterday, got, um, a total knee replacement, and um, and um, I was looking at that the other day, and it turns out that if you're African American, you're 50% less likely to have a total knee replacement for three reasons that sound really similar to this COVID pandemic. One, you are less likely to be offered a total knee replacement. Two, you have some good reasons not to trust the healthcare system at that highly complicated level of care. Three, 
you have higher rates of complications um, in the African-American community for that, for that surgery, which feels very much like this pandemic that is just revealing all of these kinds of racism, more likely to die um, from, from COVID, more likely to distrust with good reason the systems that are providing different kinds of services, less access to the highly needed kinds of services. The idea that um, this continues to be part of our reality all around us and we are we are choosing or not choosing uh, every day with great risk. Black people, brown people are making very hard decisions every day about their health. Mm-hmm. Uh, I chose to do this because um, the orthopedic surgeon is a black surgeon. Don't tell me, well, don't ask me how many black surgeons, <laughs> black so- surgeons are in this country, but, but I want to, and this might not make sense to somebody who's not black, but um, I, I trust his care and he's more willing to tell me about offering this total knee replacement. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel better about the process and the procedure. Uh, these are the real decisions and choices that, mm-hmm. that um, boy, that my privilege brings me and that so many other families without privilege and facing racism have to make their own decisions about. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I drifted into that, but... Uh, no, I mean, that's, that's an illuminating story. And I, I trust you're recovering okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, you did a, a fantastic job. And uh, yeah, cool. I know my life, my quality of life is going to be better. The study in 2018 by the um, American uh, Academy of Rheumatology measured quality of life year differences and found these, you know, incredibly great differences. And it's, it's not just whether you live or die, right? It's, it's about like whether you are leading a life that's not mm-hmm. full of pain and that allows you to do the things that you care about doing. So the quality of, of, of life years impacted by procedures like a total knee replacement yeah. are incredible, and they're incredible based on the color of your skin in this nation. So we have lots of your questions. I'm really excited about that. Um, so let's get, get into it. From Anna Rudd, suggest three changes that could get us closer to the ideal where anyone who requires care is met where they are starting from and it's the care provider who adapts to the patient or family. <laughs> well, hold on I think she named two of them. <laughs> didn't she just name two of them? Say that again. Sorry, I didn't hear you. I think she just named two of them. Uh, the the person calling that in, right? Mm. Um, you know, Matt, you know, and yeah, and provide a, a trustworthy environment. Um, trust is developed over time. It's lost way more quickly than it's built back up. And you have to make strong investments to build trust. You don't just say, starting tomorrow, it's going to be different. So that process um, is an investment and a strong journey, not a flick of the button decision or a document that you put out. Um, I think that there are ways in the moments to make better decisions and have better conversations. Uh, I I worry sometimes about, tell me the three things I need to do. there's a little bit of what I perceive as a uh, make this simple for me construct that I referenced before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we have to have uh, an agenda of transformation though in our systems, not just um, make this go away or do a few things until until the energy blows over. Mm-hmm. I'm so worried that in this time that the the reckoning that was invited this fall is already starting to, to fade in different people's minds. And 
that um, that all of these sacrifices, all of these harms, all these traumas that people have faced uh, now on the anniversary of Breonna Taylor's murder, like, are we, can we live up to my mom enough to sustain the kind of accountability and reckoning that, that I heard us say we promised ourselves we'd be doing not that long ago? I drifted from her question um, a little bit. I do think that um, people who look like you working in this field sound so simple, uh, but it makes such an incredible difference. I think people with lived experiences like you. So um, I know a lot of people who are great um, diagnosticians and decision makers who might do terrible on a MCAT, a medical standardized test. Um, how do we invite a different kind of healer into at least the traditional healthcare system in ways that other parts of the healthcare system are, are actually doing better than, than I would say medical school is. And by the way, I should ask, because uh, I believe UW has said, and you mentioned that you're working on some projects that are not just practicing you know, pediatrics to address equity. Can you tell us anything about them here? Um, well, one of them is just based on, the, on some basic questions about what really does harm to people's lives, especially young people's lives? What, what detracts from the opportunity to have quality of life years, to be part of a contributing part of society, to have opportunities, to have dreams that can actually turn into things you do, um, like, like my privilege brought me a chance to do. And uh, I see the juvenile justice system as one of the worst perpetrators of harm to young people, especially young people of color in this country. Um, it doesn't work. Recidivism rates are high. It costs a lot of money. Uh, it doesn't address the, the health needs, the mental health needs, the, the trauma needs, the experiential needs that, and things that people have had. It, it labels people as, as criminals and then trains them to sort of be criminals. It, it creates a complete derailment from opportunity. And so your project uh, then extend outside healthcare to, even to that to health. Yeah. To to health. Health. What does lifelong health look like? So um, we already know, you know, from a social determinist perspective that so much more of your health is experienced outside the healthcare system than inside. So what does it mean to live into that as a, as a healthcare informed person? Um, what is, again, it's my accounting. What am, what am I accountable for, for um, kids who, who come through the door every day in the clinics like Odessa Brown, full of dreams and ideas and possibilities that inspire you way more than you ever provide healthcare to them, that, um, that live their lives while you're watching them grow up. Um, what is going to allow that young person to be healthy? Yeah, and what, it's a lot more than what happens in the doctor's office. Yeah, yeah, and I think you can, you can meld, you can mix, you can incorporate many different things. It can be part healthcare and part wellness promotion. Um, so I want to get back outside. Yeah, I want to get us back to reader questions because we could oh, talk sorry. about so much of this for so long. But I want to make sure folks get their questions in. Um, Anu Asnani asks, if you had the authority to make changes to the current situation at Seattle Children's. Where would you start? I um, start sometimes in a very simple place um, with a, 
a different kind of philosophy for how you approach your work every single day. Um, in times when I've been in leadership, if you call it that, I don't even know what leadership means. Um, the importance of doing the right thing should overshadow every other contingency, decision-making process, or things that get in the way of, of doing the right thing. We compromise so often the right thing, not because we don't know what the right thing to do is, but because we don't have the will, to be honest, to do it. Um, so you would start with that with some kind of culture change to bring that to bear? Yeah, and that involves leadership. That involves a culture that has to prove itself, doesn't like just turn around tomorrow. Um, it involves really looking at policies. If you have policies that end up calling security on, on people based on the color of their skin, that's a policy and a culture problem. If you uh, have policies that place black and brown people more at risk for COVID, that's a policy and a culture problem. And it's a leadership decision that needs to really impact those. Um, I know it sounds like thousand foot ephemeral up in the air, but you have to stand on some values as a leader. In fact, there isn't much else beside values as a leader that you, that you can say everyone else is doing the work, right? Like all the, all the processes are happening. You are the value leader. And um, it, it is an indictment of a leader if their values are anything other than doing the right thing, in my view. From Doug. Any questions correctly tonight, so I oh. apologize. <laughs> this, is, this is a conversation, right? Not a test. Um, from Doug Conrad, I understand that you will be developing a program to advance. Oh, maybe we already answered this. Let me mm -hmm. let me look at it. I understand you'll be developing a program to advance health equity in your new position. And in a broad outline, what do you hope that program will look like? I think you told us a little bit about it. You want it to be about healthcare outside the doctor's office, the entire kind of life um, and making sure that that's equitable. Um, yeah, okay. I think we might've covered that question. Anything else you wanna add to that? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> All right. From Sharon Friel, do you feel patient care is at risk if you have a black child? And to add to her question, what advice is there for a parent navigating that imbalance? I know that there are places, uh, and I believe the Odessa Brown Clinic is a place like this where um, the risk of being black as a child in this country is greatly reduced um, because because of the people who work there, the frontline people who who look like the kids who come through the door, the providers, the doctors, the nurse practitioners. Um, so I know that there are spaces where the inklings of the right kind of care can happen. I've seen that possibility open up in front of me. Um, but the, the question is, 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 there there, is there a threat? Is there a risk to your well-being by being a black child in this country? And it's incontrovertibly true. Mm -hmm. There's every bit of evidence from the Institute of Medicine's um, unequal study that compiled 800 different studies back in 2002 to just about every study since then. It's people though, like JAMA editorial leadership that says racism doesn't exist. It's, it's people who want to blow by these issues and not address them. It's people who seek their own comfort so quickly. This, this makes me uncomfortable to, to talk about this. And what's the quickest path to make me comfortable again? It's mm -hmm. people who 
center themselves instead of uh, those amazing young people all around us that uh, that can get in the way. Mm. Th this brings up um, the new acting medical director at Odessa. Uh, her name's Dr. Shakita Bell. She wrote a Seattle Times op-ed recently and said, as a black woman, I would bring my family to Seattle Children's without a second thought. The care that is offered at Seattle Children's remains unparalleled in this region. So when you hear that, I'll just ask this. Do you think it's fair that your departure is putting so much pressure on Seattle Children's when, as you've said, many institutions struggle with the same things? It's, a, it's another kind of lot yeah. of question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I'll go backwards on this. So the fact that many institutions struggle with this does not make it okay that any institution <laughs> struggles with this. And if you are in a, a place where you have um, voice or influence, and mine was sequentially kind of erased, um, then working in those systems, you should be fighting for change. Um, I appreciate that line from Dr. Bell, and she's a, an amazing doctor, an incredible advocate for her families. Mm -hmm. She understands issues of racism um, in, in ways that many others can't even come close to, maybe including myself. Um, I would challenge her on that statement uh, uh, based on things she has told me. What uh, part of that statement would you challenge? Well, unquestioning trusting of bringing your child to Seattle Children's, wow. um, I don't think I don't think history bears that out, unquestioning, mm. really. I don't think mm. what she shared about her experiences bear that out. I, mm. I need to stop there because I'm not speaking for her. She is uh, uh, wiser than me in just every way, and she's uh, um, got uh, so many different approaches that she's really taking on. But it's, um, I would, that that's one of those journalism moments that needs more unpacking and more honest transparent unpacking in my view. I'm not blaming journalism, but I'm just saying sometimes we have compressed time and you know you can say sentences. Um, I can also see why it's important to want to restore a sense of faith and things like that. Well, um, thinking too about the families that have been going at Odessa for whom it was a gut punch that you left, would you tell them not to go? What, where would, what would you tell them to do? I would tell them a, a reality that uh, goes back to the question you asked. It is, it is not, um, you don't have the same uh, health risks when you're a person of color, a child of color, than when you aren't. And those health risks come from um, the societal impacts that create uh, maybe greater toxicity, greater opportunity for harm that has a health implication and we also know that within our healthcare systems, there is systematic racism. Again, I, I can't, you can't say that you acknowledge that systematic racism is occurring in these institutions and then say mm. uh, it's absolutely trustworthy. That's, mm. I don't think those are aligned statements, right? Or am I missing, tell me what I'm missing mm. in those two statements because um, maybe it's just more about nuance or something. No, I mean, it comes back to, these are, these are complicated decisions for everyone, uh, for sure. Um, yeah. And I know a lot, of, a lot of folks watching right now are, <laughs> have a lot kind of swimming in their heads too. Um, Can I say one more thing about this complicating 
Good. Yes, please. And, and then I think we have time for maybe one more question. Okay. This is so even more complicated, I think, in some ways with institutions like Seattle Children's. One, because they are a nonprofit and they get to forego paying taxes that would have gone to the communities around them, maybe particularly the most um, harmed communities by issues like racism and toxic capitalism and things. Um, and from that comes a responsibility, in my view. In addition, they are an, an incredibly talented place that serves not only a state, but a region. And I think with that also comes an incredible obligation to function in a way that is incredibly responsive to the many different kinds of cultures and communities, rural, indigenous, um, LGBTQIA+, um, disabled, medically complex. There's a higher bar of responsibility for that uh, particular institution than maybe some other institutions. That's part of the complication. I also think, I think black folk and other parts of the BIPOC communities understand complexity a lot better. You know that you can be, you can be black and be racist. <laughs> you can be, you know, you can, you can uh, make the least bad choice and be okay about that and, and, and maybe call it a good choice. You can really need your job. You could really, really need your job. Um, and that's part of the complexity too. So for our last question, this comes from Susan Johnson. Given the pervasive nature of systemic racism, how nervous might you be to discover it again at UW? And if so, what would you do then? It is everywhere. It is everywhere. It is in all of those institutions. Uh, I, when I was talking with my smarter than me beautiful wife about, you know, making these decisions early on and early in the months of trying to negotiate with children's and getting no response from them about all this stuff before it was public. Um, you know, we talked over and over again, I'm not, I'm not trying to escape racism because um, that's not really possible. I'm just making a choice to not be part of that children's hospital version of racism anymore to the extent that I can. Those are maybe meaningless decisions or choices to some people, but it's some level of agency for me. And um, it's a call out. It's a call out to, to one organization to do their work, just like every other organization needs to do their work, starting with a reckoning. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Danielson, for the conversation today. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you to all of our viewers. <sighs> thank you. Oh. Big breath is right, right? Yeah. Like uh, yeah. there's 25,000 more hours of talking about this that would, before you even get to a space of feeling like we're kind of closing in on things. But um, I have so much faith. I, I love Seattle Children's, uh, I do, which is why I expect more of it. I love the people that I've grown up with professionally. I more love the ideas of care. It's just, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful opportunity to be a much better place. We look forward to talking with you again, Dr. Danielson. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Dr. Danielson for sitting down with Monica and sharing more of his story and his thoughts. And thanks also to the folks in the audience for their questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, including the CrossCut Festival, which is coming in May, go to crosscut.com events. 
This episode of Crosscut Talks was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. David Croman provided research assistance, and Anne Krasnovich and Mo Klaub managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.